no, no real shame. I'm just saying this is so much better. I was in here praying this morning with Jen and we were just hanging out, having some time in the Lord and time together. And I just felt like so much encouragement from the Lord over our community. And he was saying, Hey, circle it up and put the kids in the middle and be together because that's the point. It's to be with him and to be together. And so I, um, I look around this room and I want to say this even before I, we go to the scriptures, but I look around this room tonight and I think about what the last six months has been like. And some of you have been here from the beginning and others of you are just coming along and some of you came in the middle and at different places. But man, we have had to fight for everything that we have. And I don't mean in some like orphan kind of way, like woe is me and I just have to fight to get everything I got. But I mean, the fight has been worth it to get what we have. And I personally cannot think of a finer group of folks that I would rather be doing life with than you. Do you feel the same way? And it's okay even if you may not. But I know that most of you do, if not all of us. And so I'm just thankful in my heart. I know Jen is thankful in her heart. Even when we were walking around the room, I wasn't expecting to cry. And I couldn't not cry hugging everybody that I was hugging. I was like, whoa, man, the love is running deep. Okay. Who's got their Bible out? Who's in it? Second Corinthians chapter two. Oh, spills. We got spills. Jonathan, come sit down in the middle now. Okay, everybody settled as much as they can be. Say amen if you're there, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. All right, so I, given the context of the week that we've had as a community, really the last few weeks and what God is doing, how many of you would say in your own heart, whether by someone else or by the Lord in your own heart, that you have felt corrected or adjusted in some way? McKenzie, are you with me? <laughs> well, I'm raising my hand because I have just felt, you know, everybody knows, man, how intense this week has been for our community. We've, I got back from Seattle. By the way, Michael Dow sends his love to all of you. And he is looking forward to being with us really soon. But I was out in Seattle with him. Mike was ministering at Sozo Church and invited me to come along and be with him and Stephen for the weekend. And um, the time was really rich. And it wasn't actually it was way less about the meetings and way more about the time that we spent together at the hotel and at the gym and in the restaurant and in the car and just being together. And, and um, in all of that, man, I was so encouraged 
um, by the conversations that we had concerning community. And one of the things that Michael really encouraged me in as I called on him and asked him a lot of questions was, hey man, you're going to have to fight for this, but it is going to be worth it. If you'll stay the course, if you'll just stay consistent in love towards one another and you'll continue to do what the word of God says and not veer to the left or to the right, and stick to the foundation of family in the kingdom. He said, man, you're going to find yourself surrounded by friends that are not only family, but they are people that you can't live without. And it brought tears to my eyes, not just tears to my eyes, but down my face. And Mike is so gracious. He cried with me, man. So um, my heart was heavy while I was gone because I could feel the warfare and I couldn't be here. And so I got back on Tuesday and then Tuesday, Wednesday, and even today, I just have been in awe on a personal level of the goodness of God and the way that he has won our hearts. Can you say amen? Like what God has done, not just in the beginning and a few weeks after and months in, but right now, like in this moment, I want to make it really clear for me prophetically from the standpoint of someone who's leading in the community that the enemy came to try to sift this community. He came to try to steal away members of the family of God. And by the grace of God, we decided to fight for it in the Lord and we won. Come on. Like, look at your neighbor and say, we won. We We are winning in the grace of God. The enemy came to try to separate us and divide us. And what we found out in the grace of God about each other in the Lord is that it's not going to happen that easy. If you want to come for somebody in this family, you're going to have to come for all of us. And that is the heart posture of God, man. Like Jesus leaves the 99 to go and get the one. Like he prays in the garden in John 17. Father, I pray that none that you have given me would be lost. That all of the ones that you've assigned to me, I'm asking God that all of them, that they would be kept in my name and they would be kept in the Father's name and that you would keep them together and that you would make them one as you and, you and I are one. And so even a lot of the warfare and the tension and the stress that we feel at different times is, well, because here's what I don't want to do, fam. I also don't want to revel in and give the devil more room than he deserves. Do you hear what I'm saying? Some of it is the reality that we all have flesh and we all have selfish desires that have to be put to death daily on the cross and we all have things going on. We have ambition, we have agenda, we have goals, we have dreams, we have desires, we have all these things, right? And they have to be laid down daily for the benefit and the glory of God and for each other. 
And so with all that being said, I want to say to all of you, as the Lord has said to me and taught me, is that even in correction, even in rebuke, even in admonishment and exhortation, when the Lord comes heavy, how many of you believe and know what we're going to read through is that God does not desire for us to hang out in the heaviness. He desires for us. Do you know that the point of godly sorrow is that it is to produce repentance that leads to life so that Acts 3 says that times of refreshing can come. The point is not to hang out in the sorrow over sin. The point is to repent so that you can receive the love of Christ and the joy of the Lord that comes with obedience. So I feel like everything that the Lord did tonight and is doing is that he's asking us not only to <coughs> reaffirm our love for one another, but he is reaffirming his love for us. Do you know that you're loved by the Father tonight? Do you know that your life matters? Do you believe that you were bought with a price and that you have value to the Lord? And that you have value to us. You have value to the person next to you. Right? You get what you pay for. Family may cost me everything that I have. But it is worth it. Do you believe that? Alright. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Say amen if you're there. I'm going to start in verse 1. <clears throat> and Paul is, just to give a little context, he is literally exhorting and encouraging the church to reaffirm their love for one another, saying that when offense happens or when things blow up and things pop off, he's saying deal with it as a family but make sure that you come back together and you reaffirm one another in love so that the accuser doesn't come in and try to pull you right back into that swirl that we just pulled you out of. Right? What does it mean to be forgiven in the Lord? It means that it's done. It's finished. It's under the blood. It means that if I've forgiven you, it means that we don't have to talk about it anymore. Come on. Right? Like, as far as the east is from the west, that is how far our transgressions have been removed from us. How far is the east from the west? Anybody know? I, no. Dude, you can't count that high. You can't go that far, that wide. We can't see <coughs> that far to the left or to the right. That's how far the transgressions have been removed. And while God has the ability to remember my sin no more, oftentimes <coughs> in, a, in, a, in a moment of weakness, I choose to remember the sin of another person. And hold them hostage out of my own insecurity. Right? 
And what I am encouraging us to do in this moment tonight is to wipe the slate clean as a community. We want to celebrate what the Lord has done, but I didn't come here to rehash it with you all again. Does that make sense? Now, we will if we have to, if we decide that we want to go that route again. But fam, how many of you went through something so intense this week in the Lord? You're saying, hey, I'm good. I don't need to go through that again. Not all of us, some of us. And we've actually all been there. Let me, let me say to you like this. How, how many of you in here would say you've been through a process in God and there were parts of it that were so intense. You're like, hey. I learned my lesson and I'm good. We don't need to do that again. Right? Like, thank you for the discipline. Thank you for the spanking. Thank you for <coughs> the, way, the way that it went down. But how many of you believe, right, that the Lord actually doesn't desire for it to be that intense all the time? He doesn't. Because you actually, we weren't made to live up under the weightiness and the heaviness of that thing, man. Like... <clears throat> the point of it is to produce repentance that leads to life so that you don't go back. Like the severity and the weightiness at times of God's discipline in us within community is so that we will literally turn and turn in such a way that we don't ever have to have this conversation again. I literally listened to someone repent this week and the sister said, I'm sorry, and I'm never going to do that again. And I said, amen. Like, that's what it means to be sorry. It means I'm done. I'm moving on. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Okay, now we're really going to read the Bible. Are you ready? Paul says, but I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. He's basically saying, fam, I've already had to lament in my heart and reach out to you on account of your actions. And now here I am again saying, hey, what are you doing? He says, for if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad? But the one whom I made sorrowful. Paul is literally saying, I've had to correct you and bring heaviness to your heart. Not because I want to, but because I felt like I had no other option. And in your sorrow, your sorrow is actually making me sorrowful. And I would rather that you would just repent and be happy. Paul is saying it doesn't bring me pleasure to come heavy handed to you on this account, but I'll do it not for my sake, but for yours. Who's got kids in here? Most of us. Have you ever had to discipline your children and it made you sad? You're like, dude, this sucks. But I have to do it. Because if I don't, the Bible says that he who does not discipline their children condemns their soul to death. So it may not feel, I mean, we talk about discipline doesn't feel good in the moment when we're receiving it. I'm telling you that discipline when you have to give it doesn't always feel good either, fam. If you're doing it the right way, it shouldn't feel good. 
It shouldn't be this arrogant, prideful, condescending thing. It should be coming from a place of humility and grace. It may come with zeal and passion, but it is sorrowful even in its delivery. So Paul goes on, he says in verse 3, And this is the very thing I wrote to you. Lest when I came, I should have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. He says in verse 4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be made sorrowful. So Paul is saying the heart of the Father for you is not that you would actually be made sorrowful for sorrow's sake, but that you would be sorrowful that you might repent and turn away from that which I am addressing you about. He said, but that you might know the love which I have especially. Say, especially. Especially for you. Like Paul's parental heart, man, for the church. It was the heart of God the Father for the church. You can say what you want about apostolic ministry and what apostles are or not. But I will tell you. That true apostles and true apostolic ministry is actually rooted in the parental heartbeat of God for the church. That true apostles and true fathers and true real brothers and mothers and sisters in the Lord, they groan with a longing out of Ephesians 4 to see the saints be matured and to grow up into the stature of Christ. Again, if you have children... The longing of my heart for my sons is to see them grow up so that they're not trying to live in my basement at 30 years old playing video games and sucking on their thumb. Right? Like the point of discipline is to mature you. It is to to mature me. It is actually the evidence of your sonship. And we've said it before, but let's say it again, right? That orphans view correction as rejection. Sons view correction as affection. Do you feel loved when you're corrected by the Lord? Do you feel loved when you're corrected by others? If you don't, the Lord wants to have a conversation with you about it. We're having the conversation now. Like... I just want to encourage some of you in the Lord in my own life. And Jen can testify because we've been together 12 years and even beyond that 12 years. Part of my own testimony and my walk with the Lord has been that some of the heaviest rebukes I think any human has ever received, I feel like I received them. And they saved my life. They saved my soul from death. They kept me from running my car off the cliff and killing not only myself, but everybody else in the car. And it was the mercy of God to come to me in those moments and in those seasons say, hey, what are you doing? Right? 
Like if you see a child walking out into the road and an 18-wheeler doing 70 miles an hour down the road, what are you going to do? Say, hey, I don't think you should play in the road. Or are you like, hey! Hannah knew it was coming. Are you not bolting, running, screaming at the top of your lungs, get out of the road? That's what Paul is comparing the parental heartbeat of God to. He says in another place in Corinthians, he said, shall I come to you, the same church, shall I come to you with a rod of correction or in a spirit of gentleness and mercy? I prefer the easy road. But if you make me, I will come to you with heaviness and with a rod in order that you might repent and turn your heart to the Lord so that your soul will be saved from affliction. Do you guys, are you tracking, right? Like, this isn't, this isn't just about the things that have been happening this week. This is about us learning to track with the Lord in our own heart and be a people who are regularly and willingly submitted to the discipline of the Lord in our own lives so that we can grow up into the character and nature of God. Come on. Do you know that in the same way that we have been corrected, admonished, rebuked, that God is going to call all of you at some time, at one point or another, to do the same thing in another person's life. Because everybody here is called to make disciples. Right? Paul admonished Timothy concerning the word of God. Fam, do you know that three out of the four things that Paul said the word of God is for were around correction, rebuke, training. He's like, hey, you're going to have to confront things in people their way of life, the way they think, the way they feel, the way they carry themselves. You're going to have to do that, not out of pride and self-righteousness, but with grace and truth. And if you don't do it, they're not going to grow. How you doing? Picking up what I'm putting down? Word. Who said that? Hannah did. Come on. All right, let's read verse 4 again. He says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be made sorrowful. And can you hear it in Paul's voice? It is not my desire that you would feel sorrow, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Love is what drives God-born correction. And God-born correction is always birthed out of redemption. Do you guys know that the discipline of the Lord is not punitive? How many of you don't know what the word punitive means? Don't be afraid. Okay. Punitive. So the judgments of the Lord are redemptive, meaning that the purpose in the purpose in the correction of the Lord and the judgment of the Lord is to bring about the fruit of the Spirit, salvation, healing, and deliverance. It's redemptive. It's not punitive, meaning it's not meant to punish you, to leave you in your sorrow. Punitive, taken from the word punishment. God is not punishing us because we are His children. He's disciplining us and training us because we belong to Him. Does that make sense?
verse 5. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but to some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. <clears throat> Fam, do you realize what he's saying right here? He's saying in community, nobody sins in a vacuum. That your choices, both good and bad, that they radically affect the family. Hello? Like, what we do every day no longer just affects me, but it affects you. The testimony of Jesus that you're allowing to be developed or not allowing to be developed in you is going to radically affect the people that you're looking around this room at right now. He says, but if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degrees in order not to say too much. He's saying, hey, what I said earlier, I'm not going to rehash. Paul's saying, I'm not going to go into detail about some of the crazy stuff y'all have been sending me letters about. But yo, your behavior is affecting everyone else and you need to stop. He says in verse 6, sufficient for such a one is the, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. <laughs> Family discipline. Paul saying you have made choices to engage in this way of life which we have exhorted and admonished you in. He said, and whatever it is that you have decided in the Lord, he said, I'm deciding it with you. I've applauded your desire to obey the Lord and to obey the scriptures and I am pleased with your response. How do we know that? Because he says in verse 7, so that on the contrary... You should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Verse 7. Actually, let's go verse 6 again. Sufficient. For such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. So here's what he's saying in the context of our community, right? That the processes that have been put in place and that have been happening in our midst, that they are sufficient and that we can all move on together in the grace of God. I want you to put your finger up in the air like this. I want you to hit the button in front of you. Boop. We're pressing delete. On everything that was this week. Some of you are like, oh, let me hit it a few more times. Yeah. You can as many times as you want to. But one time is sufficient. The processes that have been put in place as a family. These things are sufficient for the salvation of your soul and for your growth in God. And so we do not need to continue to talk about them. He says, Rather, we forgive and comfort one another, lest somehow we become overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Verse 9, say amen if you're there. 
For to this end also I wrote that I might put you to the test. Can you say test? Whether you are obedient in all things. Paul's actually referring to the process of discipline that we see in actual in Matthew 18. He's saying, are you adhering to the protocols which the apostles have set in place so that no amount of evil or wickedness or sin will be perpetuated in the community? Have you been, I, I'm testing to see whether or not you're being faithful to that which I instructed you in before I left. So that when I come back to you, I might find you doing that which I instructed you in. Verse 10, I love this verse. But whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. Can we talk about secondary offense for a second? Anybody ever been offended because of something that someone else did to somebody else that has nothing to do with you? If you're married, it's really easy to do that too. You did what? You said what to my... You did what to them? Listen, champ, I'm going to, right? Shelby, what you looking at? <laughs> Paul saying, if you forgive them, I don't even need to know what happened. I forgive them also. I want to encourage you this week as we move on throughout our days. Delete means delete. And if they hit delete, then I've hit delete too. Now, I'm not saying that if it hasn't been dealt with, fam, we don't deal with it. But what I'm saying, man, again, is as far as the east is from the west. Shelby, if you're forgiven, I forgive you. Brenda, if you've been forgiven of something, I forgive you. If we would be quick, do you know how you keep offense from getting in your heart? You forgive quickly. Can I actually encourage you in something in your life? Can I? Yes? Come on. So just one yes, please. Because you know I'm going to do it anyway. That for some of us, the reason why we get offended so easily at times is because we're processing things we should just be forgiving. <laughs> Dude, just let it go. Don't even give yourself time to go through the rigmarole in your heart and figure out whether or not I should be offended. Do you, do you see how silly that sounds? Do you know where that comes from? It comes from the culture of the world that says that you're entitled to feel a certain way about everything that happens to you or is happening to others. And the reality is we become traumatized by secondhand offense because we're processing things we have no business even knowing about. Let it go, fam. If it's been, if they forgive it, I forgive it. I don't even want to hear about it. Do you know that you're guilty of gossip if you listen to it, even if you don't repeat it? Hello? Gossip, to be defined biblically, is any time 
I am sharing something about someone with somebody else that I have not either talked to them about or I'm not willing to actually have a conversation with them about. It's gossip. And it opens the door for the accuser of the brethren to literally begin to launch accusations at that person in their life. Like, do you guys understand, like, the fiery darts of the evil one get released based on what we say or don't say? Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I thought about this today. Do you guys understand that it's not us waiting on heaven to move. It's heaven is waiting on earth to do its job. And by earth, I mean the church. People. Angels have not been made in the likeness and image of God. Man has. We are the imagio Dei, the image of God. We are the light bearers. We are the authority figures in the galaxy. Bearing His authority. Bearing the gospel. Bearing who He is. To the world. Our life prophesies to principalities and powers. Principalities and powers don't prophesy to me. Are you hearing me? Like, we're waiting to be influenced by heaven. And heaven is actually waiting to be influenced by us. We don't gather around angels to hear their conversations. But the Bible says they gather around us to listen to what we're saying. They're the servants of men. We're not the servants of angels. Hebrews 1, man. We've been created in the image of him who is superior even to the angels. And angels are servants of fire. They are winds that have been sent to serve the sons of men in the earth so that the son of man's will will be manifested and accomplished. One day the church is going to graduate from the message of identity and we're actually going to start to learn about authority. We're still busy trying to figure out who we are and heaven is confused by this. Because they're like, hey, we know who you are. It's time for you to do that which you've been called to do. Because Jesus is not confused about what the church is or who the church is. We're confused. But this is what this is about. Right, Glenn? Well, Glenn had to go somewhere. Is he still in here? No. Glenn and I were having a conversation. It's fine. And he was like, hey, man. He was like, sometimes I forget why we're here. I was having a conversation with Michael Dow. Again, my brother, who I love from another mother. I said to him, I said, hey, man, how often do you reaffirm your people in the value of what you're doing. He said, every time we get together. I'm like, whoa. Okay. So I'm not crazy. Because sometimes I'm being honest, right? As a leader, sometimes I feel in my own insecurity, this struggle to every time we get together, have to put out new content. We got to have a new message. We got to have another whatever, man. And I'm telling you, like, there isn't another message. Like, this is the message. And none of us are doing this the way we ought to be doing it. And it's not a shame thing. 
it's a, it's a thing where, we're, where I'm going, hey, man, like, I actually felt this amazing permission from the Lord through Mike to make the main thing the main thing and keep it simple. And fam, if we can master what, what is simple, whew, dude, we'll turn the whole world upside down. God took 12 men and turned the world upside down. What could he do in a town of 7,500 people with 25, 30 people fully on fire for God? Come on, bro. There you go. I believe that our lampstand in this season, which is the influencing authority of this body of believers, is going to be connected to how well we choose to do what's written right here. How well are we willing to do and to be concerning the gospel on a daily level of dying every day? Whereas I had to spank one of my sons today, actually like an hour before we came. Pretty intense time of discipline in some senses. And I rejoiced because the fruit of that discipline was him saying to me with tears, Dad, I haven't been dying daily. I said, come on, man. Whew. How many of you believe that the majority of the pain that I feel in my life is not anybody else's problem but my own? It's self-inflicted. And I could get delivered from a lot of the pain and the trauma that I've subjected myself to if I would just give myself to the Lord in love. I have a desire in my heart, and I know it is in your hearts. I know it's in the heart of God to see God make a community of mature believers in this city who actually manifest the character and nature of God in such a way that it causes his power to break out and the testimony of who he is to be told, not just by what we say, but how we live and how we love one another. Your life is a prophecy. How well are you prophesying? Are you a self-fulfilling prophecy? Or are you a prophecy that's full of the testimony of Jesus? Manifesting his life and his light to the world. Verse 10, again. But whom you forgive, anything I forgive also. For indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything... I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. This is what he says, verse 11. In order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Can I tell you the truth? That according to the Bible, 
the number one, say number one, the number one way that the enemy gets into the life of a human being is through unforgiveness and bitterness. Number one. Number one, the most traumatizing thing you can do to yourself and other people is not forgive them the way that you've been forgiven. And every time I choose not to forgive another person, <clears throat> all it does is reveals to me and to others around me that I don't actually have a revelation of how much I've been forgiven of. Right? He who has been forgiven much, loves much. But love is forgiveness. And dude, like, if this is what I'm saying, family, I'm going to go back to this before I close in a few minutes. Because I don't want to keep lingering, but I know the Lord is here. Do not harbor offense. Not your own, not your spouses, not your kids, not your friends, not your... If you hear it and it begins to offend you, you have to, what has to come out of your mouth is what Jesus said on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And fam, there's also a deeper reality of Father, forgive them, for they know exactly what they're doing. <laughs> there's some who don't know. It, they sin in their ignorance, and there are others who sin in their arrogance. They know what they're doing. Forgive them and let it go. Your spouse might be the sole source or the greatest source of unforgiveness in your own life. You may not be dealing with it. Forgive them and let them go. He says, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Fam, we cannot, we, we must be, by the grace of God, a community and a family that refuses unforgiveness. We are a people and are going to continue to be a people who if I even think that I think that I think you're offended with me, I'm coming to your house. I'm calling you on the phone. I'm seeking you out to say, hey, man, are you offended with me? And I, and I don't mean like attacking people. I don't mean like, hey, man, like you got a problem with me? No, no, no. I mean, hey, man, I feel like there might be some tension here, and I'm not sure. But if there is, I just wanted to come to you in humility and say, hey, if there's anything we need to get worked out, let's work it out right now because I don't want to live with offense in my heart. My number one prayer and my own personal life over the last seven days has been this. Father, make me unoffendable. I want to be so secure in your love and in your peace that no matter what gets said and no matter what gets done, that it doesn't rob me and keep me from the joy that you and I have in one another. Do you know that you're choosing to forgive others is one of the chief ways in which God disarms principalities and powers in regions and cities. They tried to do everything they could to offend Jesus. Oh, they were after him. Anything they could to offend him, work him up, work him over, get him in sin. He said in John 14, 30, the evil one is coming. The prince of the air is coming to test me and I am not afraid. 
for he has nothing in me that he can find. I have forgiven all my enemies. I have prayed for those who have cursed me. And I am ready to go die on the cross. Are you ready for the cross that is going to be there looking at you in the face when you wake up tomorrow morning? Because the cross is a choice. The crucified life is a choice. And whether I choose to do it or not is my choice. I'm choosing to pick up my cross, deny myself, and follow Christ. And fam, how many of you are realizing that it's not just once a day? <laughs> how many of you had to pick up your cross today? More than once. More than 10. As many times as it takes, champ. Whatever it takes, however it takes, because he chose the cross. You guys remember I preached a message a few months ago called Crucified Before the Cross. Because he was. He lived the crucified life before the cross ever came. And if we will learn to do the same, then when those moments that come to crucify us come, it won't be able to take the testimony of Jesus from us because I've already been crucified with Him. This is big boy stuff. It's big girl stuff. This ain't for the faint of heart. A couple more verses. You don't have to go here, just listen. Where'd my little piece of paper go, bro? Do you see it? I had a little one. Oh, no, it's right here. Let's just listen to these verses. A couple more verses. Paul's parental heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is actually giving a defense of his apostolic ministry. He's saying, these guys are false apostles. They're not actually fathers. They're false brothers. They take advantage of the church. They use people for their own gain and glory. And here's what sets me apart from them, Paul is saying. It's not all of the glit and the glamour. It's not the amount of churches I've planted or how many speaking engagements I have. That doesn't make me or not make me what I am. Paul actually takes off his shirt in a sense and says, I've been given the 39 lashes five times. I've been stoned to death. I've been shipwrecked. I've been abandoned. They've tried to kill me and take my life. They have spoken evil of me and tried to take me out so many times. And then at the end of all of that, he says, and apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for the church. Yeah. Who is weak without my being weak? And who is led into sin, he said, without my most intense concern. Paul was saying, all these physical things have happened to me to try to take my life. But the thing that actually burdens me the most is whether or not you're being formed and fashioned into the image and likeness of the one whose gospel I've spent my life preaching to you. 
This is why Paul said that among you are many teachers, but so few fathers. What's the difference between a father and a teacher? Another word that we could use in the translation is that in the world or among you, there are many influencers. Think about the social media generation. How many influences are online? Everybody wants to be a social media influencer. Everybody wants to be a content creator. We have people that have not paid the price to walk in authority. They don't actually have intimacy. Therefore, they don't know their identity but they want to teach everybody everything about what they should do, how they should do it, right? Can you say amen? amen. Like, you have so many influencers. <clears throat> do you know that the biblical process for influence has two other things that have to happen before it happens in the kingdom? It's intimacy, then it's identity, and then it's influence. Do you know what happens when people assume the role of influence when they haven't been faithful in intimacy and they have no identity? Absolutely. They produce a people who look nothing like Jesus because you can't give away what you don't have. The difference between a father and a teacher is that while teachers will teach you things, fathers will show you things. They will walk it out with you. They will give their life away and lay it down. They, fathers will lay down their lives for people while teachers will not. Like... Fam, we don't need any more teachers. We need fathers and mothers. We need, God is looking for a people and not just people with a father. It's people made in the image of the father and many fathers and many mothers who are willing to lay down their lives to see the people of God be formed and fashioned into the image of the son. Are you guys doing okay? Can I read a few more verses to you? For real, can I? Are you sure? 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read a few verses here and then I'm going to land the plane. Say amen if you're there. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Make room <coughs> for us in your hearts. For we wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. He said, I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. 
Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all of our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without and fears within. Listen, he said, but God who comforts the depressed. Paul was saying, I was depressed. Paul was saying, I was bogged down, man. I was heavy with sorrow. We were comforted by the coming of our brother Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. Do you know that as a people that we can literally be one of two things to one another. We can be a comfort to one another in the Lord, or we can be a thorn in each other's flesh. We can be a source of great comfort, or we can be a great source of sorrow. Do you want to be a source of comfort, or do you want to be a source of sorrow? And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. Verse 8. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. For I see that that letter caused you sorrow Though only for a little while. It's about to get deep, fam. You ready? He's saying, I came to you with heaviness of heart and heaviness in my speech because my hope was that it would produce in you something that's not temporary but permanent. How many of you believe that the nature of repentance is not temporary but it's eternal? That it's actually supposed to produce a fruit of the Spirit that changes us and transforms us, not just for a time, but for forever. Right? Like, what would it be like to live my life before the Lord in such a way that I never revert back and go like a dog to its vomit? You ever tasted vomit? It don't taste very good. Shelby. Verse 9. Two verse, a couple verses and we're done, fam, for real. He said, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Right? What I was saying earlier, fam, heaviness is not about heaviness for heaviness sake. God's not trying to inflict sorrow on us in correction and rebuke or in discipline and in judgment so that we sit in our sorrow and stay unchanged. The invitation of correction is transformation. Like, yes, I don't want to be here again, Lord. Okay, then take your medicine and be transformed. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. 
in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. So what is the point of correction? What is the point of rebuke? What is the point of discipline? Is it just to make you feel bad? Or is it to save me from things that I can't even see coming? Does God not intervene in the affairs of our lives trying to keep us from what we can't see and what we can't hear and what we don't know because he sees it and he hears it and he knows it? Do you know that the reason for family, one of the reasons for family is this little thing called safety? And fam, I don't mean like safe in the way that nothing is ever going to happen to you. Because honestly, the most dangerous thing you can do in some ways is give yourself to family. Because nothing in your life is going to be safe from the glory of God. Nothing is going to be able to be kept off the table. How many of you have already come to understand that the deeper you go in family, the greater the buy-in actually gets? We were joking around the other day. A lot of us, we sold everything we had. We moved across the country to be planted here. We gave up certain things. We gave up relationships. We gave up cars. We gave up houses. <coughs> we laid down jobs. We said goodbye to families, right? Yes? We paid the price. And we were joking around the other day saying, and we're only six months in. That was just the buy-in to get into the game. Do you think it would be wild if I said to you, that though it's cost you something in this season, the reality is it's going to cost you even more later down the line. And do you know that that's not to come with heaviness? It's so that you might understand the need for grace. Which, how many of you believe that it was the grace of God that allowed you to do what you've done so far? If he was faithful to us in that, now, will he not be faithful to me then when it's required of me at that time? Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worry of its own. And God is going to make a way where there is no way. God is going to supply for us what we need when we need it. That was amazing. Yeah, that was literally amazing. I love you, Z. Verse 10. And then we're, we're going to, this is the verse we're going to wrap everything up in. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. If your repentance or your sorry doesn't come without regret, it didn't come from God, it came from the world. Leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Do you know what the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow is tonight? The difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow Let's just talk about it practically, right? People that practice worldly sorrow are sorry because they got caught. And they want 
what they're afraid is going to be taken from them to be given back to them. So they're willing to say, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. The sorrow of the world says, I'm sorry, and tries to move on quickly. Sorrow that comes from God says, I'm sorry, and I don't care what it's going to cost me to make it right. I'm willing to do it because I'm more concerned with the way that I've grieved God than I am with anything else. Come on, right? If you have to be asked to repent, you're probably not repentant. Now, being asked to repent may eventually produce repentance. That leads to life. But fam, we ought to be living such a way in the presence of God and in the presence of one another that when we sin against the Lord and we sin against each other, the first thing on our mind is that we ought to be able to repent without having to even be asked. We should run to say, oh my God, I missed it, I'm sorry. Please forgive me for what I said or how I said it or what I did or what I didn't do. Fam, do you know that if we will allow the Lord to get us there as a family in a community, if we, that, that we will become an unoffendable people where the enemy has no agreement in us. He can't do anything to us because we're radically committed to the gospel of the kingdom. How you doing? For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. Listen to what he says, man. This is the fruit of godly sorrow. Godly repentance. He says, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal for the Lord, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent of the sin in the matter. Like, godly sorrow should actually produce zeal for righteousness. It should make me passionate for Jesus. Godly sorrow doesn't get done with apathy and indecision. It gets done with fervor and zeal. Come on, man. Have you ever really been sorry for something? Do you remember how it felt? It wasn't half-hearted. It was, I'm all in and I'm sorry I did that. Have you ever had someone apologize to you and their sorry sucked? And you're like, dude, you're not sorry. I forgive you, but I don't really think you want forgiveness. Like, you're just giving me lip service. And the Lord is saying, I'm looking for a passionate people who are so obsessed with my righteousness and hate sin so much that when it comes into the camp, they're like, no, whoa, I'm sorry, get it out of here. What do I have to do to be brought back into right standing with the Lord and with community? Not, ah, uh, mm, mm. do you hear me? Are you picking up what I'm putting down? All right, last verse, verse 12, and then we're going to pray. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended. Huh. 
Check this out, fam. He's saying, I'm actually, this isn't about you and your offense or you and your lack of it. But that your earnestness on your behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. We have preached forgiveness in the church. And this really is the last thing I'm going to say. We have preached forgiveness in the gospel. Mostly and solely as a benefit to you and to me. When really the power of forgiveness is that it prophesies to the powers that they've been defeated and that their end is coming soon and very quickly. It is a reminder to them that the Son of Man is going to split the sky and return for a bride who He has washed in His blood, baptized in His Spirit, and called to be His alone forever. Forgiveness is not about you and it's not about me. It's about Him and His glory in the earth. Well, I don't know if I can forgive Him. Then don't do it for your sake. Do it for His. Because He forgave you. And He forgives them. Fam, can I say to you in, in all of your maturity... Forgiveness is not an option anymore. Repentance is not an option anymore. It's a foundational place for the life of the Christian who says, I'm a follower of Jesus and my life is submitted and committed to Him. I forgive you because I know that He's forgiven you. Let's pray. Abba, we love you. Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your kindness that leads men to repentance. Father, thank you for your affection being manifested through correction. God, thank you that you love each one of us enough not to leave us the way that you found us. God, I thank you that you are not content with our lives the way that you are and you are beckoning us to go from glory to glory, from strength to strength, from faith to faith. Father, I pray in the mighty name of Jesus over our community, over this precious family within the family, Lord, that you would continue to use your word and your good works, God, to provoke us to a place of righteousness, God, that looks like love and joy and peace in the Holy Ghost. Father, I pray, Lord, over my heart and over the hearts of those in this room, Lord, that you would make us an unoffendable people. Lord, that you would help us to be a body and to be a family who forgives quickly. And not only that we would forgive quickly, but God, that we would forget it even faster. Lord, that we would be a people who are able to overlook 
God, the iniquity of others or the shortcomings of others and that we would see your desire for them and what you're doing and that, God, you would place within this people a prophetic spirit, God, that will look through that which is external and pull out that which is eternal in all those who are made in the image of God. And I feel like even as we're closing, even as I pray that, I feel like the Lord is literally inviting some of you, if you want to do it, to put your hands over your eyes and to begin to ask the Lord to see things the way he sees them. And not just to see things, but to see people the way that he sees people. Father, would you open our eyes to the treasure that is in the field right in front of us. Lord, would you help us to see the value of your glory, Lord, in your people. Lord, and would you give us the grace to pull it out of each other so that your son can be high and lifted up in this community. Father, I thank you that even now you're releasing the prophetic spirit, God, the anointing of the Holy Ghost on our hearts and our minds, on our eyes and our ears. God, I pray, Lord, that we would not, that when bitterness and offense tries to come, God, I pray, Lord, that we would become spiritually violent people. Lord, who vigilantly cut off every influence that's trying to drag us back into hard-heartedness and sin. Father, I pray that zeal for your house would consume us. Zeal for one another. Zeal for your son. That love for Jesus would be the thing that matters the most. Lord Jesus, we love you. Can you tell him with me one time, Lord, we love you. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your love. God, come and have your way in our hearts tonight. And Lord, I pray, even as we go, Lord, Lord, that whatever it is that needs to happen out of this place and space in this season, that God, you would do it, that you would get it done and you would get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.